If you'd like to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, we're going to continue our look at this great leader, this great book, this great God. I'm going to read just a few verses in the midst of the chapter. These are words spoken by the woman Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, here are the words Rahab spoke about the Lord. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Father, we've asked you to be our vision. We have proclaimed your amazing grace. And now we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit and teach us, remind us yet again of your greatness and your glory and your grace that we might say with this woman, you are the God of heaven and earth and you love us and you care for us. Do your work, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So these songs were fitting as we get into this section, and even uh, Jordan trying to understand what potentate is, is fitting. It's a good word. We need to reintroduce that into the English language. Potent. He's strong. He is powerful. And the last line of the last song we just sang is we're declaring he is ruler of all. But as you look out on the world, don't you sometimes at least ask the question, What's he doing in this world? What is this ruler, this king of kings, this Lord who reigns over all other lords, this one who, who is the ruler of the nations, what is he doing in the nations? What is he doing in our nation? This has been an unprecedented, I know, it's, can't use that word, it's overused. This has been just a crazy year in so many ways. In the last month, the last couple of weeks, we're still waiting for the election results. Some are, some are convinced we already have the election results, but some are waiting. And we're, we're thinking, where's this going? What's going to happen next year? And some are very excited about this person being president or that person being president. And some are very scared and concerned about this one being president or that one being president. And that's just our nation. And you start thinking all that's happening in, in Europe, in Afghanistan, and in, in all the nations. They, Jesus, I believe, I mean it when I say it, you're the ruler of all this, but what are you doing? What's the, uh, what are we to make of all the violence, all the wickedness? all the strife and the struggle, the disease. What do we do with all that? Uh, I, I don't have the answer to all those questions. If you think I'm setting up to answer all those questions, I, I'm not doing that. Um, 
But I want to at least talk about some patterns we can see in history as we have learned now what God was doing in the past. One of the passages that comes to mind is in Romans chapter 11. Paul says this in Romans 11, Behold the kindness and severity of God. The kindness part is, uh, that's easy. But it's the severity that is harder for us at times. This verse occurs in a section where Paul is describing God's severity to the Jews. God had hardened their hearts so that they would not receive Jesus as the Messiah. They would reject the Christ, and God was pouring out his judgment upon the nation of Israel. And in just a few years after this letter was written, the Roman armies, the military under the leader Titus came and laid siege to Jerusalem, burned down the city, burned down the temple, and wiped out most of the inhabitants. And for 2,000 years, the Jews that were left wandered around without a, without a home. The severity of God poured out even on Israel. And yet in the same chapter, he says, that means kindness for the world. As the Jews rejected the gospel, the gospel went out to pagan like Romans and Ephesians and the areas of Galatia and on and on, and they received the gospel and many of them were saved. Behold the kindness of God at the same time. Earlier in chapter 9, the beginning of that section, that key section in 9 through 11 of Romans, God says, I raised up Pharaoh for this purpose. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he says, I put you as the king of Egypt for this purpose that I could display my glory in you. Well, the glory he was displaying was a severe glory. He was going to wipe out Pharaoh and his armies as he brought about the ten plagues. But then he showed his kindness to the nation of Israel. They were rescued out of slavery to Egypt and headed toward the promised land, and God showed them great kindness. Here as we come to the beginning chapters of Joshua, we have the, uh, the nation of Israel about to enter the promised land. As they do so, in addition to receiving the kindness of God by inheriting the promised land, God is also showing his severity to the nations that occupied that land. And this goes all the way back to the original promise that God made to Abraham. When God called Abraham out, he said, Abraham, look as far as you can in every direction. I'm going to give all of this land to you. But to you, Abraham, actually, you're not going to receive it. You're going to die and live with the fathers, sleep with the fathers. I'm going to give it to your descendants. And here's what he said back in Genesis 15. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. That's on Abram. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So God is telling Abraham, 
your descendants, before they receive the promises, they are going to be slaves for four centuries. And they're going to be oppressed. And it's, there's going to be a heavy burden placed upon them. This is all in advance, obviously, of it happening. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. So this, this nation that's going to oppress them and enslave them, when the time comes, I will judge that nation and bring severity on that nation. I will show my kindness to Israel. To, he doesn't know it's Israel yet. I will show my kindness to your descendants, and they will come out with great wealth from the enslaving nation. He says, as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, that's the, the four centuries there, they, your offspring, your descendants, will return here. And notice this last phrase. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Do you see what that is saying? God has a plan for the nation of Israel. They are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God has a plan for Egypt. At the end of those 400 years, God is going to pour judgment upon Egypt as he rescues his people. Then he's going to bring his people Israel into this, this land of Canaan. They were called Canaanites. They were called Amorites. Lots of other descriptions as well. Little city-states all throughout this land. And in that verse, God says, this Amorite people, there is a cup of sin, a cup of iniquity that they are filling up with their great wickedness. And if you research the Canaanite people, you know they were a vile people. They worshipped a vast number of gods, Baal, one of them, the major one, uh, great sexual sin, great violence. Uh, witchcraft, all of it. They were a wicked, corrupt people. And they were filling up this cup of sin. And God says, it's, it's growing, but it's not yet full. But in 400 years, it will reach the top. And I'm going to bring your descendants, Abraham, out of Egypt and use them as the instrument of punishment and judgment. And I'm going to pour out my cup of wrath on this wicked people. And we're going to see in the upcoming weeks that God did just that. And he destroys the Amorites and the Canaanites as the cup of their iniquity finally reaches fullness or completion. And yet... There's one family in this first city called Jericho, one family that receives the kindness of God. Now, if you look at this wicked group of people and you think, who is it that's likely to receive the kindness of God? You think, oh, there's probably some 
little farmer, you know, he's got a little bitty farm on the outskirts of town that is just a very simple person, keeps to himself, and he looks at all the stuff going on in the land, and he thinks, oh, no, I, I don't like any of that, but I'm just going to keep here to myself. Or, or you think of a, a fireman or a policeman or somebody who's trying to do good and doesn't agree with all that's happening, but this guy at least is trying to live a good life. Surely that's who God is going to show his kindness to. That's not who it is. It's this woman, this prostitute, on the lowest rank of immorality, she's the one that, she, that God shows great kindness to. So that's some backdrop as we get into chapter two here. If you know the story, I hope you've been reading along uh, as we go, because we're not going to have time to cover every single verse. But the, the story sets up, sets up like this. Remember last week we looked that God said to Joshua, it's time, take the land. So chapter two here, Joshua sends two men as spies into Jericho. And their job is to get a lay of the land and, and see how strong it is and that kind of thing. So we read there in the opening verses, these two spies go to Jericho. And when they arrive at the city, they, they stay at this, uh, this prostitute's house. And we're not given any information. Uh, my hope is that these are godly men. And they just looked at this as a strategic place, thinking maybe nobody will notice us, maybe uh, we'll, we'll sneak in here, and I hope they didn't commit sin with, with Rahab, but they, they, her house is built into the city wall itself, and they come to the city and they, they sleep the night there. And they are caught immediately. Now, my sort of cynical mind reads that and thinks, these are just really bad spies, right? I mean, you walk in the first day, you're caught. I mean, what do the Israelites know about espionage? They've been slaves for 400 years. They weren't a mighty warrior-like people. Uh, I don't know. But they, they walk into the city, and they get caught immediately. They get found out. They, they walk in, and people say, oh, Jews, Israelites. There they are, and they report back to the king that these guys are there. So it may be that they're really bad at their job. There's no 007s here. But there's another part of the story. I already read this from Rahab's own lips. The Jericho people knew about the Israelites. They had been hearing what the God of Israel had been doing. For 40 years they'd been hearing the stories. All the way back to the parting of the Red Sea and wiping out the Egyptian armies. So they all knew to be on the lookout. If those people come here, we're in trouble. And so these two men walk in and everybody is, I mean, they're doing profiling is what they're doing, right? And, and we get that. There's a description. When you see Jewish people, watch out because they're part of that group that, that their God is powerful. We do the same thing. We think of certain, right now we, we tend to think of terrorist groups, and, and you know and I know, we have a mental image of someone who fits that, that terrorist group. And if we see someone like that in a certain situation, we start thinking, oh no, what's under their coat? You know, they, they have a bomb strapped to them. We've, we've seen enough of that to say we're on guard against a certain description of people. Now that's harder because it's not a nation it's segments within these nations that are doing this. So you can't just say everybody from that part of the world is a terrorist. Can't do that. That's not right or good. But if you imagine people who had a reputation for destruction as a nation, then absolutely you say, oh, those people are powerful. They're strong. We need to beware. Well, that's what's happening here. These two Jews are, are clearly part of that group, and everybody in Jericho knew it. 
And so immediately on seeing these two Jews, it's reported back to the king, hey king, there are two spies sent from Israel and they've come to check out our land. So the king sends men to Rahab's house and says, Rahab, we know these guys are here, turn them over to us. And Rahab says, uh, yeah, they were here, but they left and they're gone and they, they headed back out of the, to the hills, so go get them, you still have time. And so those men went after these men and uh, they shut the, the city gates. Now Rahab is a smart woman. She is a shrewd woman here. She had hidden these two spies up on her roof among the flax piles. And now she goes up to them and says, look, I just saved your life. The king sent men here to take you, and they were going to question you, and then no, no, no doubt kill you. Uh, I sent them away. Now you owe me. And here's what I want. When your God comes to Jericho to deliver us into your hands, you save my life. And not only mine, but save the lives of my family. Here's the bargain. All I have to do is sound the word and there'll be more men from the king to come and they'll take you out. So I'm asking you to save me. Again, I want to read what she said. Verse nine. I know the Lord. That's Yahweh. She's using the proper name of, of the people of Israel. Yahweh. I know Yahweh has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Three times that language is used, that, that verse, uh, that, that wording is used in this chapter. Their hearts were melted. These people had heard the story of God parting the Red Sea. They'd heard the story of Israel going into these Amorite areas, these cities like Sihon, and Og, we don't know much about them. We don't get a lot of details in the earlier scriptures, but they must have been impressive victories for Israel because word was spreading that this God of Israel gave these slaves. Remember, these were slaves. The Israelites were not great warriors. They weren't trained as warriors. Pharaoh wouldn't do that. He's not going to train his slaves in, in the matters of war. They come out of Egypt, and they're destroying everybody who gets in their way. And so much so that the people of Jericho, their hearts melted in fear of that God. Rahab is persuaded that that is the one true God. Did you hear her testimony? Your God, Yahweh, is the God of heaven and earth. Not a God. See, the view back then was, my nation has a God, your nation has a God, and depending on the day and depending on how we sacrifice and depending on their, their disposition, some, sometimes your God will win and sometimes my God will win. And oftentimes, if another nation came in and you thought, oh, their God seems to be more powerful than mine, maybe I'll give my allegiance to that God. That's not what Rahab is saying. She's not comparing religions. She says, I understand now, after what I've heard, your God is the one true Oh, may we all have the faith and the commitment to the truth of Rahab. Think about our day. It's harder from this perspective 
to proclaim the truth of God than maybe their day. Because we have been so secularized. You can't go out and proclaim to your neighbors or your coworkers the mighty acts of God and expect them to be convinced that God's behind that. Because we've pretty much eradicated God being involved in anything in our day. We have figured it out. Science has figured everything out. We know the cause of these things. You're just, you're just, you've got to have this crutch to lean on to believe that there's some higher power behind all this. But we know better. Things just happen because of scientific or, or human processes. If there is a God, and that's doubtful among most people, but if there is a God, he's a very nice God. I mean, he's just so sweet. He's so nice and gentle. What, what he wants is to, to make you happy. And if you would just, you know, be nicer yourself, you could have a really great life and God would be happy with that. And if God does anything, he does things that make us happy. He doesn't want us to be sad. And he's certainly not going to hurt anybody because that wouldn't be nice. He's concerned about things like the climate. If you all would just stop driving your cars around, then you could have a nicer existence here. Maybe earthquakes would stop. Don't try to say that God had anything to do with that earthquake or that tsunami. We know better. Those are forces of nature, not forces of God, even though in the insurance policies are so-called acts of God. But there, it, we know now scientifically why it happens. And if anything, God wants us to stop driving our cars so that things will settle down because we know there were no earthquakes before we had cars and oil burning and that kind of thing. It's hard to convince somebody that God may have had anything to do with natural disasters, one nation conquering another nation. So much so that I think Christians even begin to doubt if God is really involved in those things. I mean, I hear Christians talk about Mother Nature now and then. Now, I think I know what we mean by that. I think we're just using cultural terminology. But Mother Nature? I mean, that's, that's getting close to blasphemy. There's no such thing. When we look out at all the things going on in the world, we may not be able to understand why God is doing it. But as Christians, we do believe God is doing it. There is nothing outside of his sovereignty. He is the potentate of time. We shouldn't sing that song if we don't believe it. And we've got to figure out a way to communicate to the world that we believe this. COVID-19 is not an accident. Now, I don't know what God is doing with COVID-19. And my guess is you don't either. And he's not revealed to us his plan. But we don't want to react the other way and say, no, 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 God has nothing to do with this. No, God's doing something in our nation and other nations of the world. And we need to stand with Rahab and say, this, this one thing we know, even if we, we don't have all the answers as to why, one thing we know is the Lord is the Lord 
of heaven and on earth. We must not let this pagan woman have a stronger faith than we do. So she says to them, here's the deal. I won't turn you in, and when God gives you the land, you spare me and my family. And they say, deal. (laughs) We like that. You don't get us killed, we won't get you killed. And the arrangement is, when the Jews come and march upon Jericho, Rahab is to put out this red rope, this scarlet cord, outside of her window, which can be seen from outside the city gates, outside the walls, And when the the armies come from Israel, they will see that scarlet cord and they will save everyone in that house. And her responsibility is get everybody that she wants to be spared inside that house so that they will be saved. So then she sends them off and says, Uh, You guys go to the hills for a while, for three days. These guys go out, they won't find you, they'll come back, and then you can go back to your people and return. And here's how the chapter finishes up. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened. They said to Joshua... Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Again, that's the third time we see that phrase. These guys, unlike some of the spies 40 years ago, these guys show up and they see and they observe, these people are terrified of us. The land is ours for the taking. The land is ours for the taking. And Joshua says, yes, the Lord will deliver. Think about the imagery of that scarlet cord hanging outside the window. It conjures up another event. Forty years earlier, when God was bringing the angel of death through the camp in Egypt, he says to the Israelites, anyone who will take a lamb and kill the lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, when this angel of judgment comes through, he will pass over any house with that blood on the doorposts. Well, the same thing is going on here. When this agent of God's judgment, the Israelites come to Jericho, when they see the scarlet cord hanging there, they will pass over that household and spare them the doom that is waiting the rest of the city. And all of that points to a much greater example. Where God says, My severity is coming upon every human being. We all have a cup of iniquity. We all have a cup of wrath. Every human being, man, woman, boy, girl, all of us, as we sin, we're just adding to 
the cup of iniquity. And God has said very clearly, it is appointed for man once to die and then judgment. Death is not the end. We will stand before him at judgment and he will pour out the cup of iniquity that we have made for ourselves with our sin. And he will pour it out on us. Behold the severity of God. Unless, but God, two great words in the Bible. He says, anyone who will put their faith and trust in my son Anybody who will bow the knee to my son Jesus and say he is king, he is the potentate of time, he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and ruler of the nations. Anybody who will believe that he came to this earth and died on a cross, though he was innocent, he had an empty cup. His cup of iniquity was completely empty. There was nothing in it because he never sinned a day in his life. Never a wicked thought. Never a wicked action, never a wicked word, purity. And God says, whoever will believe that he died on the cross and he came back to life on the third day, he said, if you believe that, I will take your cup of iniquity and I pour it out on my son Jesus. Every single drop. And then I will put in your hands that pure cup. I will transfer his perfection to you. And now when it comes your time of judgment, there's no wrath to pour out. There's no iniquity to pour out on you because I poured it all, all out of my son. And you're forgiven and you're righteous and you're pure. Behold the kindness of God. What is God doing in our land? What's he doing in all the lands? I don't know. I mean, I don't know the significance of the events of today. He has not given us his playbook exactly. He's not given us the strategy. He's not said, oh, I'm doing this. But what we can be sure of is He's still judging nations. He's still using some nations to judge others. Does not mean the instrument of his wrath is more righteous. If he uses America to destroy other nations, it doesn't mean America is righteous. And if he uses other nations to destroy America, it doesn't mean America is less righteous than that nation. I mean, he's got his purposes and his, his means and his, his ways, and he uses evil tools to destroy evil people. That's just, that's what he does. We know that's going on even if we can't draw the lines carefully. But we know he's also saving people from every single one of those wicked nations. Everyone. We're heading toward that day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around and proclaim his grace and his glory. And so our job is to preach the gospel. 
to tell people there is a cup of iniquity that you are filling up and the only way to escape the wrath of God being poured out upon you is to put your trust in Jesus. The only way for you to receive the kindness of God instead of his severity is to put your hope in Jesus Christ. That is the one thing for sure we know Jesus is doing on planet Earth. And it's good. And he's doing it a lot. He's saving people. And he's given us the tasks. So, beloved, I want to exhort you as we think back to Rahab. Here's this woman that nobody would have picked out and thought, oh, she's going to trust. I wouldn't pick her. You wouldn't pick her. But God did. And she's an example for all of us to say, don't look at anybody in our culture and think, no, they would never come. They would never repent. They would never believe. Nobody's in that category. God will pour out his kindness on whomever he chooses. Our job is to preach the gospel and watch as he does amazingly gracious things. Dave Wall, one of our elders, is going to come and pray for us as we close.